Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this 13th episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I'm Ed Hill, and uh, this podcast is dedicated to the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, that were written way back in the 1840s. So I'd just like to say, at this point, I thought that seeing as people might be new to listening to the podcast, anyone who's not heard it before and this is the first episode they're going to listen to if you're interested in listening to the previous episodes you might want to listen to the first one called an introduction to the grand tour which explains a bit further about how the journals have been passed down my family how they got to where they are today and sort of basically explains why i ended up doing this podcast because i should mention these journals have never been published anywhere else before They've just been in my family, so they're the only people that know about them. So when I'm reading them, this is literally the first time that they're being heard by a wider audience other than just my family. So yeah, you can listen to the introduction again, and they explain more a bit like that. And you might, hopefully, you'll like to listen to then the first episode after that, which is the beginning of the journey, and uh, accompany William on his travels through Europe, and eventually we'll get to Mexico. It's a long way off at the moment, I have to say, but we will hopefully get there. I hope so. Apparently, there have been a few more listeners, according to my data, that uh, I get to see how many people are listening to this podcast. I must admit, even I was rather suspicious of the huge spike in listeners that there suddenly seemed to be, and contacted them and said, I'm sure this cannot be right. There must be some sort of bot that's downloading it. And sure enough, there is. <laughs> but... If by chance any of you, I think it's some problem with Samsung phones particularly, but if, if you've ended up listening to my podcast by, by accident because your Samsung phone has decided of its own will to download it, then uh, welcome and please listen and tell all your friends. But yeah, if you've suddenly ended up with a grand tour with my great-great-granddad on your Samsung phone, that's more than likely why. Do listen to it. hope you enjoy it. And catch up on all the previous editions they're available on all good podcasting platforms itunes amazon music spotify teaser tune in blah 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 blah, all those ones good pod is a new one i think that's on there pretty well any platform pod bay i think is on Podbean. pretty well on all the podcast platforms there so do listen to it i was just going to say that um at this point in the journals william is now in northern italy so he's gone over the alps he's still in the country of piedmont and savoy and um like the Savoy side is uh, the Duchy of Savoy is almost like the French, what would be now the French side, and Piedmont is like the Italian side. But at this time, it's one small unified country under the kingdom or under the rule of the kingdom of Sardinia and the kings of Savoy. So, as I mentioned before, Italy this time isn't unified. 
and particularly in the north region of Italy, there's various states, Lombardy, Venetia, which is the one he's kind of travelled to, Savoy and Piedmont, there's the uh, Papal States, it's another one, there's a very small one called Genoa around Genoa, which is his own little independent state at this time, at this point they're all individual areas of Italy that are either ruled themselves or ruled by other countries such as Austria, for example Lombardy, Venetia, is actually under the power of Austria. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast, a lot of that's to do with the Congress of Vienna when a lot of uh, Europe was sort of carved up um, by the powers who'd beaten Napoleon. They sort of carved Europe up and said, you can have this bit and you can have that bit, partly as a sort of reward for defeating Napoleon, but also partly as a way of trying to continue to contain France and its imperial expansion. So anyway, William is now in Turin, and um, this episode is about his... He spends a couple of days in Turin, and I basically thought I'd do... Because there's quite a lot of information about it all, I thought I'd do two episodes in Turin. And this is the first one, and obviously the next one will be the next one in Turin. Because as I say, he spends his time there. Uh, As he was in Paris, he gets around really quickly seeing all the sort of museums and um, libraries and uh, churches and uh, things like that. So he certainly doesn't hang about old will seeing the sights of these cities but as i said said before i suppose you know they would have been much smaller then so perhaps it's generally a lot easier to have got around to various sights and sounds i think it's just say it's quite an interesting episode in this one i think i don't know a lot about turin so it's been interesting researching it and how it's changed and how it hasn't changed and how quite a few things you know date back right back to when William was there and that are still there today so I'd like to visit Turin one day and um, see some of the things that William's talking about definitely one to uh, to chalk onto your travel list if you can also just to mention the usual things about the social media side of things there's the Twitter account which is uh, Scott of the Historic that's 3G at 3G Grand Tour that's the number three, G Grand Tour. There's a Facebook page, which is um, at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And I've also just set up a, a Mastodon account, what with all the shenanigans going on at Twitter and Mr. Musk's erratic and, I would say, unsavoury behaviour, I think, um, so far in running it. One has to ask, A, what's the future of it, and B... Is it necessarily the sort of place for sensible discussion? I don't think it ever was. So I've set up a Mastodon account, which is meant to be all friendly and uh, and and let's hope to say civilized. And that is um, at scotted at universeadon.com. So there's a server, a Mastodon server called Universeadon, and I'm so I'm at scotted at universeadon dot com and uh my username there is gg grand tour so if we're going to start this new one let's all be sensible everybody just take it nice and easy nice and relaxed no one get on a high horse about it just polite conversation and exchange of ideas if we can let's not all get too excited <laughs> don't get too excited and just have nice polite conversation on there and that would be good and uh and actually, as I was saying, maybe we should all take out a, a leaf out of William's book and um, talk to each other in the nice, polite way that um, mid-Victorian gentlemen seem to have talked to one another. So um, 
In fact, I was thinking, actually, I might actually set up my own Mastodon server and insist that anyone who joins has got to has got to um, converse in uh, kind of Victorian style language, you know, as if they've just stepped out of Dickens' novel. And hopefully that might rub off and uh, make it much more civilised and uh, friendly and uh, certainly polite between each other than uh, the usual things we, we get on social media. Uh, as I say, I have to say, I'm generally new to social media, really, and the main reason I'm doing it is because of the podcast. So it's a bit cynical like that, unfortunately, but um, because, quite frankly, I would really... Well, it has its plus and minuses, and I don't really engage in social media that much on a personal level, but I hope, certainly in terms of the podcast, it'd be lovely to hear from people. And um, so through all those things I've mentioned, like the Twitter thing and the uh, Facebook page and stuff like that, and the new Mastodon account, it is really, really nice when I do occasionally get the odd uh, comment or the odd um, friendly question or whatever, you know, so please, please do that if you want to. Um, I think that's really about it, all I've got to say now. I think I've witted on, and I don't want to go on too far. As I didn't want to cram too much into this episode. I thought it'd be sensible to do the first day and the second day with William in uh, Turin. So I do hope you enjoy listening to this next episode and, and some of the interesting uh, things that he encounters. I must say, in this section, I thought, interestingly written bit. I don't know what it was. Something about the style of language he was writing here seemed to have, um, I suppose it may well be because he's writing more and more that he's kind of getting a little bit more, shall we say, not exactly fluent, but maybe a more individual style is emerging in the way he writes about things, I think would be the way I'd put it. So um, I don't know whether you'll notice that, but uh, it, it's something I've, I've just noticed listening back to it this time. Anyway, hope you enjoy. Turin is the largest city in the Piedmontese territory and the capital of the Sardinian monarchy. Its situation at the confluence of the rivers Doria and Po is an admirable one and its natural advantages have been diligently seconded by art. The town is of an oblong form and including the ramparts four miles in circuit. The streets are in general wide and straight and intersect each other at right angles and also running direct lines from one extremity of the city to the other. The regularity of the plan of Turin, the multiplicity of its public buildings and elaborate style of architecture, which distinguishes it, the great part of them, gives the city the precedence of most of the cities of Europe. The provincial square, or Piazza Reale, both for size and beauty, ranks as one of the first in Europe. Several of the streets have at the sides arcades, or piazza, this affording a convenient covered walk for foot passengers, to shelter them from either the sun or the rain, both of which are troublesome in this city. Most of the streets also terminate on some agreeable object. The one called Strado di Po is by far the finest and largest. It leads from the old bridge to the river Po, to the front of the royal palace. The principal object of attraction to any stranger is the enormous quantity of marble of every vein and colour used in public buildings. The Corso, not quite sure where this is in modern day Turin. The Corso is also a charming place and is much frequented in the evening, 
the Turinese being very fond of showing both themselves and their equipages. That's horse-drawn carriages, quite often with servants. The palace has fine gardens, which are used as public walks, and command fine prospects. There are also fine walks on the ramparts, where you see a beautiful range of hills rising on one side of the river, and on the other a plain strewed with villas and gardens extending to the base of the Alps. The city is much more imposing at first entrance than either Paris or Lyon, from the breadth and cleanliness of the streets and the uniformity of the houses. There is something also, and to an Englishman especially, that tells you you are in a new region, the appearance of the population. But the most striking object, as at Susa, were priests, monks and soldiers, all of whom literally swarm at Turin. The dress and figures of the Piedmontese officers are handsome, and the large flapped hats and the long flowing cassocks and cloaks of the priests and the monks, together with their confident air, told me at once that they are not the despised and neglected order as I had seen them in France. The cathedral is dedicated to the Virgin. It is a superb Gothic building, and the following morning after my arrival, I attended the service of High Mass for the first time on the continent. The splendours attending the cathedral service, the dim light of stained windows strangely contrasting with the blaze of numberless tapers on the altar, the magnificent cross and sacred vessels, the long train of priests and choristers, the intoxicating effect and overwhelming sweetness of the incense and the inexpressible sweetness of the music, consisting of the soft breathings of the organ and wind instruments now lingering, as it were, upon every column and monument now rushing to the remotest part of the edifice. The whole scene is not only strikingly new, but even romantic to a Protestant, who is almost accustomed to think of such things as these divided from him by the centuries. To see also penitents kneeling on the steps of the churches, and votaries offering up their supplications before pictures of the Virgin at the corners of the streets, to notice inscriptions also over the doors of the churches. Quotes here. Plenary indulgence and pray for the soul of Francesco Costani, was sufficient to make you think indeed that you had gone back at least two centuries. But we may go to a Roman Catholic cathedral to gratify a taste for music and splendour, but not for sentiments of devotion. The choir and the chanting, the military band and the opera singers, the banners and trophied ornaments, the decorated altars and splendid paintings, the voluptuous portraits of the beautiful Magdalene and handsome St Sebastian, are more likely to lead the mind astray than lift up the heart to the great creator. Truly, these things are of the earth, earthy. Verily, I thought at that time that the Piedmontese were sunk in the lowest depths of superstition, ignorance and bigotry. But years have passed away since then, and it has since been my lot to cross the wide Atlantic and to find amongst the Mexicans a people ignorant and priest-ridden to agree that any person who had not witnessed it would scarcely credit at this point, I just thought I'd actually read from some original notes that I made at the time when I was first transcribing this part of the journal, because it sort of reflects a little bit on a theme that will emerge. So here goes. This seems a good point to note that William's ridiculing of Catholicism, particularly its priests and its rituals, is very apparent throughout the journals. Whether this was a widely felt view amongst Protestants at the time, I'm not sure but it seems quite likely. Religion and church-going was a much bigger part of people's lives at this time than it is for most of us today. From my modern, more secular view, it's difficult to sympathise or empathise with these attitudes. 
It is ironic that William often refers to Catholicism's bigotry, consequently at the same time displaying his own. So there you are, sort of summed it up a little bit. I did say earlier, didn't I, um, in a previous podcast, I wasn't quite sure of William's background, but of course he he does overtly say from a Protestant point of view. So um, that quote that I've made at the time, or that note that I made at the time, sort of sums it up really. It's very hard to go back in time and see or know quite on a day-to-day basis at that moment, or just in William's character, quite how bigoted. Well, we get a good idea of how bigoted he is against Catholicism. But to be fair to him, and I think this is actually a theme that comes out in Mark Twain's account of his grand tour, which was quite a bit later than William's in his book, I think it's called The Innocents Abroad, this theme of seeing the wealthy, rich and um, exploitation of the poor by the priests and by the Catholic Church in those countries where it holds a lot of power is something that Mark Twain comments on and it's obviously something that William seems to see a lot as well. So you could describe it as certainly there's a degree of bigotry there in, in William's attitude to Catholicism. But I suppose, you know, you could say it's coming from a place where this money that's being spent on all these spectacular and glorious works of art and also seeing, as he quite often refers to them, happy and plump and well-fed priests, while much of the population of these countries look very poor, you know, there is a hypocrisy there or there is a discrepancy there between um, what the church is preaching and what it's practising, I suppose, is, is what you'd say. In fact, I'm just going to read some notes here about Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad, and and this particular topic. It says uh, here, This equivocal reaction to the religious history the narrator encounters, that's Mark Twain, may be magnified by the prejudices of the time, as the United States was still primarily a Protestant nation. The Catholic Church in particular receives a considerable amount of attention from the narrator, especially its institutionalised nature. This is particularly apparent in the section of the book dealing with Italy, where the poverty of the lay population and the relative affluence of the church are contrasted. There are, someone summed it up much better than I could. So it's something that Mark Twain writes about. Um, He was doing his tour about 1868, apparently, and it's something that nearly 30 years earlier William is commenting on too. As I said before, this will come out quite often. I think now he's in Italy, there's more obviously overt Catholicism around and as he says later in Mexico it's even more. I think after a while I may just have to stop explaining it because you just have to get used to the fact that that's how William feels about the Roman Catholic Church so you know there's no point me commenting on it every time he mentions it. Sometimes it's quite comical in fact the words he uses I think when he's talking about the fat priests it does sort of make me chuckle a little bit so i suppose that's just a kind of forewarning that there will be quite often these sort of references and that is just how william expresses it but as i was saying it does come from perhaps this uh, idea of seeing if you like the hypocrisy of what the church is preaching and and what it's actually practicing which um, is an understandable thing to have strong feelings about I 
but it is time I should notice those other places of Turin that I was fortunate enough to visit. And first, the Royal Palace. This consists of two magnificent structures, joined by a gallery. The architecture is rather heavy, and it certainly pleased me less than any other public building in Turin. But the chief point of attraction is its collection of pictures, especially those of the Flemish and Dutch schools. In the guardroom is a rare picture by Palmer of the Battle of St Quentin, also Marilla's Confessional, Gerrit Dow's Women Gathering Grapes, and Paul Potter's Animals, along with Holbein's celebrated portraits of Luther and his wife. I might explain just very quickly who some of those painters were. Basically, most of them are painters who were around in the early to mid-1600s. Murillo, who he refers to there, is Bartolome Espan Murillo, and he was a Spanish Baroque painter, religious painter, but also sort of known for the everyday scenes that he painted as well, which gave his work authenticity about everyday life. There's a rather nice painting of his, I think, called um, Two Women at a Window, which is uh, quite a charming picture. There's one lady looking out of the window directly at the painter or at the viewer, and then next to her there's a friend who's rather shyly looking around the corner with her face partially covered. I can see why his paintings appeal because of their authenticity regarding real life. The other one is Gerrit Dow. Just to say, when researching some of these painters and other people that William mentions, he's often not getting the spelling quite right, so sometimes that can make it a bit hit and miss whether anything comes up on them. I think that first painter he mentions, Palmer, I've found no reference to that person at all. So Gerrit Dow, another 1600s painter, part of the Dutch Golden Age, and he was a student of Rembrandt, but he actually later on specialised almost in miniature paintings and did very, very fine work. It says here that he spent five days painting a hand on one of his portraits, but they were all done in very small pictures, and because of the fineness of it, he actually made his own paint brushes because they needed to be extra fine to be able to do his work in the way that he did it. And apparently he often also used that technique, which uh, where they use sort of convex mirrors to um, enlarge what they're painting so they can see it better. And the other one he mentions is this Paulus Potter guy again, another Dutch painter. He actually only lived till the age of 28 and died of TB. And there are about a hundred of his paintings left, and they are mainly these sort of animal paintings. His most famous one is, I think, uh, described as a bull in a field. I think his work was later on admired by people like Stubbs, who was very famous for painting horses and animals in England. So um, I think they call it the Romantic Age, and I think his pictures could look quite romantic. So um, I think there was a bit of a revival a hundred years later after his death about his work. Looking at it, I think it must have influenced someone like Stubbs, who did many more. Obviously, he lived a lot longer and did many more paintings of horses and animals and things, but I think there must have been some influence there from Paul Potter's work. I'm probably not quite saying it right, not saying it in what the Dutch pronunciation would be. And, of course, the last artist he makes reference to there is Hans Holbein, a very famous portrait painter, particularly in the court, although I think he's German. He spent a lot of time around the court of Henry VIII and... Uh, I think he painted that perhaps most famous painting of Henry VIII where he's sort of standing very proudly with very broad-shouldered attire on, looking out to the viewer. And uh, he also painted, uh, well, he painted at least three of his wives anyway. So um, Anne of Cleves and I think Jane Seymour's one, another one and another one. 
I think he actually became pretty wealthy, if I remember correctly, by getting these commissions from the great and the good of uh, the people around Henry VIII's court at that time, including the king himself. So those painters, if you want to look them up, by all means do. The Hall of Museum of Ancient Armour, formed by the King, Charles Albert, afforded me the highest gratification of anything I saw. It is rich, well-arranged, and very effective. The University of Turin is a magnificent and celebrated building. The number of students at that time amounted to more than 2,000, and among the professors have been reckoned some of the most learned men of Europe. The rich library of the university belongs principally to an ancient collection of books and manuscripts formed by the Dukes of Savoy and commenced about the middle of the 15th century. This stupendous library reckons more than 112,000 volumes. Amongst the manuscripts are 70 in the Hebrew language, 370 in Greek, 1,200 in Latin, about 220 Italian and 120 French. In this library there are also some Chinese books of poetry and medicine. There is also a Piedmontese flora begun in 1732, and it is still continued. This is a truly remarkable work and contains nearly 5,000 coloured designs. The Museum of Antiquities was formed about 1780 and contains a few remarkable specimens, among them the most excellent of which are Greek marble, a cupid sleeping on a lion's skin, a bust of Seneca, and a marble bust of the Emperor Julian, and another of Vespasian, the wonderful mosaic of Orpheus found near Cagliari, and equal to the best in Rome for the beauty of the wild and tame animals represented in it. There is also a bronze statue of Minerva, one of the most remarkable known on account of the delicacy of its execution. The middle room is allowed to be the richest in Europe, containing not less than 30,000 specimens. The Royal Academy of Science was commenced in 1759 and is rendered particularly illustrious from the labours of the celebrated Lagrange. It consists of two departments, the first devoted to mathematical and physical science, the second to moral sciences, history and philosophy. The Royal Military Academy and the Academy of Fine Arts also deserve notice. The Piedmontese are more expert in science, war and trade than in the fine arts, so that they have generally been deemed inferior to other Italians in this respect. Notwithstanding, they are situated in the midst of scenery which ought to at least produce good landscape painters. The Egyptian museum is not to be surpassed by any other, yet at the same time its valuable treasures are by no means well arranged. In the courtyard stands the stone statue of Ozymandias. It is more than 15 feet in height and weighs 18,750 pounds. It is railed round with iron palisades. There are some other admirable statues of Egyptian kings, viz. that of Amenophis II, Thosmosis II and that of Ramesses VI the great Sesostris, which is in black basalt with white spots. He is seated in a throne in military dress and holds a sceptre in his hand. The expression of countenance in this celebrated statue is mild but noble. The hands are perfect, the figure good, and the feet, which are generally neglected in Egyptian statues, are of good proportions. The remaining statues and bas-reliefs are very interesting, and the implements of agriculture and other articles in common use among that remarkable nation are curious and valuable. OK, I'm going to stop here. I advisedly use the word briefly, just to say a little bit about a couple of the museums that William is discussing here. Primarily, I'm going to talk about the Museum of Antiquities and the Egyptian Museum. The 
Museum of Antiquities that he mentions. There is still a Museum of Antiquities in Turin. He he mentions this mosaic of Orpheus that uh, he says is comparable with the best in Rome in terms of the animals depicted. I've found reference to it, but it's really hard to see or find a really good picture of it. But it is in the Museum of Antiquities there. There were many, many mosaics of Orpheus. It was a very common one in Roman mosaics. So mosaics of Orpheus are sort of dotted around many parts of Europe. But uh, as I say, he mentions this one. I'd like if I could see a good picture of it, but I've, I've searched and searched and searched. And although I've found reference to it being in this Museum of Antiquities in Turin, it's really hard to find a good picture. I've seen one where you can sort of vaguely see a bit of a corner of it in um, in the picture, but no just pictures just of the image itself. So it's very hard to tell how well created the animals are on it. But anyway, if you ever happen to go to Turin, why not pop into the Museum of Antiquities and have a look for yourself? The other thing I didn't realise, he mentions this Egyptian museum. Museo Egizio. And obviously it was very impressive at the time to him, but it's actually still a very, very impressive Egyptian museum. It's considered to be the second most important Egyptian museum after the one in Cairo. So I have to say I'd never heard of it and didn't know there was such a great collection of objects. Apparently there's more than 37,000 items in there now. Obviously at the time William was visiting it was nowhere near as many items as that and it seems there were various collections of Egyptian things being acquired in Piedmont at the time or in Turin but it seems around about 1824 which is a few years before uh, William's there about 20 years before it was King Charles Felix who got 100 Egyptian statues and that seems to be the sort of beginning of this museum and then obviously the, the collection was added to as time went by to what it is today I'd certainly like to go and visit it. It sounds very impressive. I think apparently it still gets um, more than 800,000 visitors a year to it these days. And it's actually in the original building. It was So that's probably the building that um, William was walking around, although I'm not quite sure. They, they said um, at one time the Museum of Antiquities and the Museum of Egyptian Items were together so and then separated. So maybe the bit that William's looking at is just a sort of adjoining bit to the Museum of Antiquities. Just to mention that this statue that he talks about, particularly of Ramesses, well, he mentions two, Ramesses VI, he calls him, and the great Sisostris. I mean, fair play to William. There's two things probably going on here. Obviously, there's been a lot more extensive research done in subsequent times into the history of all these objects. So probably what William is looking at and maybe being informed on at the time is what they or their best guess of who these people were and who these statues represented at that time so he may be just relaying that or you know he's just going from memory and getting it a bit wrong which is fair enough as well because the particular statue he's looking well firstly i should say who the great sesostris was the great sesostris is almost like a mythical egyptian king could almost say a bit like um, king arthur He's supposed to have conquered great parts of Europe when he was in power, but there's there's no one king of Egypt or Pharaoh who they think it was. There's maybe two, three that he's kind of the legend is based on. And one of them is Ramesses the second. Now, 
William makes this reference to Ramesses the Sixth, and then describes this statue being in black basalt and how the feet and hands are very well executed and so forth and how it's got a scepter that he's carrying a scepter in his hand now i'm pretty certain there's a picture of this statue that he's discussing it's actually Ramesses the second not Ramesses the sixth so whether at the time it was erroneously marked or or whether that's just william trying to go from his memory it's it's thought Ramesses the second was also a very very great king there's more actual evidence of his success and empire building around Egypt and parts of Europe than um, there is of Sesostris. Sesostris dates back to a prior time and there's, as I say, he's almost like a combined legendary figure. Ramesses II definitely did exist and it's partly thought that Sesostris is, you know, you can see where the confusion comes. Two great kings and uh, their achievements are very similar and um, at the time archaeological research was in its infancy so how much they actually knew and and how much evidence of things of who these statues were representing at the time William's there remember this is uh, 180 years ago is uh, obviously going to have changed in that time but this description of the statue is is rather nice I, I think and interestingly he's wearing rather different headgear from the normal type that you'd associate with pharaohs you know with Tutankhamun and stuff he's he's got this more it's more like a hat on his head it's like a bishop's hat on his head than a the thing hanging down by the side of his head and he has got this scepter and he's sitting there looking very stern but as I can't remember now what the phrase William uses for his countenance but uh, anyway yes a kind of calm countenance on his face and I'm pretty certain this is the one that William's seeing at the time and it's the one that's still there if you go to the Turin Museum. This big statue of Ozymandias that's 15 foot high and weighs an awful lot of stuff that's meant to be in the courtyard. I can't see any pictures of that. Whether it was taken inside, I don't know. It's very hard to know. Maybe it was returned to Egypt. You know, of course, that's quite a possibility as well. So I don't know. I can't see any modern day pictures of that one that he describes, but certainly this one of Ramesses the second. I'm pretty certain that's the one that William is calling Ramesses the sixth, because the similarities from what he's describing and looking at the pictures of it look uh, very, very similar. Uh, but though it's quite amazing to think that this really is a tremendous collection of Egyptian stuff that dates way back, and is still the second most important collection of stuff after Egypt itself and car at the museum of Cairo itself in italy so if you're ever there in turin it's that certainly would seem like a good uh, place to spend your time now as indeed it was in william's time back in 1840 just to mention oh yeah Ramesses the second they found his mummy because apparently they think he lived to the age of 90 which is incredible for some of that time and you know it says he outlived all his wives and a lot of his children <laughs> So he was a truly great Egyptian king. If you look him up, you kind of see he kind of was pretty well the one who created Egypt at the height of its its empire and the height of its time, and also built a lot of the monuments and stuff that are there. So he is a great king. But they've identified his mummy, and that is still back in Cairo now. That was returned to Cairo. I think it apparently it spent a bit of time not that long ago in the 70s in France where they, they did a lot of work investigating it and also trying to um, preserve it even more. 
Well, they sometimes say they think he might have had red hair, although um, originally had red hair. I mean, by the time you're 90, you wouldn't have any colour, possibly white hair. But anyway, he might have had red hair and it's all sort of conjecture about his appearance. I mean, there's pictures of these mummies. I, I've got to say, I always find them rather, rather unpleasant, really, of these corpses with their rather gaunt expressions. And uh, <laughs> I'm not so keen to see those, really. In fact, at my school, I remember we went once went on a trip and they actually said we're not going to take you to that bit of the museum. This must have been at the British Museum because we don't think it's appropriate to um, gawp upon the corpses of dead people, which uh, I still think you're doing, isn't it? That's what you're doing. You're gawping at corpses. Uh, is it nice? I don't know. One for the moral philosophers out there, I suppose. But anyway, if you did want to go and see Ramesses II as he is now... You can go to Corinth to see his uh, zombieish remains. Anyway, but yeah, fascination of Egypt way back in 1840. Great, isn't it? And um, obviously, William thoroughly enjoys his time touring around all these uh, universities and museums in, in Turin. And um, I wouldn't mind doing it myself. I've never been to Turin, so um, maybe I'll be able to go one day. It would be utterly impossible for me to particularise the numerous churches and chapels there are in Turin, but I understand there was, besides the cathedral, 47 churches, 67 chapels, and a great many monasteries and nunneries. But there was one I visited that requires a special notice, that of Superga, the Basilica of Superga, a splendid church built on an eminence near the city and dedicated to the Virgin, this edifice was erected by Victor Amadeus II on the spot where Prince Eugene, in 1706, reconnoitred the position of the French army then, besieging the capital, and in memory of the successful campaign which delivered the Ducal States from the invading enemy. The grandeur of the design and execution of this building is much lauded by visitors, and vast treasures have been bestowed upon it in order to make it the surprising and magnificent place we find it to be today. The eye is dazzled with the glories of its proud arcades, its superb cloisters and terraces, its marble columns and pavement, but still the mind turns away in dissatisfaction in reflecting on the bestowal of such enormous wealth on what certainly is nothing more than an object of curiosity. From the nature of the situation, the cost of conveying materials to build a church there must have been immense all of them having to be carried on the backs of mules or raised by ropes, whilst the utility for any purpose of devotion was altogether overlooked, it merely affording an abiding place for those lazy drones who, under the pretense of retiring from the world, commit all sorts of wickedness and lead the most dissolute lives, praying and fattening on the already overburdened peasant and the keeping up of the reign of bigotry and terror. He's basically talking about Catholic monks here, rather than priests. In this building, the bones of Victor Amadeus II rest in a royal sepulchre, said to be the most costly in Europe, and a goodly array of those aforesaid fat monks to pray for the repose of his soul. Above the church rises a copula, that's a dome, from whose lofty top the rich plains of Piedmont, the majestic Alps and the broad and rapid Po may be seen in all their pride and glory. This memorial of his gratitude to the Virgin may be seen for leagues and leagues before that capital can be approached which his valiant legions saved by their devoted heroism, and none can I think ascend the superga without thinking of and speaking of Victor Amadeus II. But had he founded an institution like the Hôtel Dien at Lyon, or the Hôtel des Invalides in Paris, or the Hospital of Chelsea in Greenwich, 
His name would have been blessed by hundreds and thousands, when now it is mentioned only amongst those many vainglorious sovereigns who knew how to conquer their enemies, but not make their subjects happy. Men like him might try to outdo the works of nature, he may erect the most stupendous and costly monuments, but in most cases, as in this, they expose him to censure and reproach. The hill on which the superga stands would have commanded the same extensive prospects without the aid of that aspiring dome. Its bold elevation would itself have remained posterity. Upon that height stood Eugene, Prince of Savoy, when his great mind comprehended at a glance the blunders of the French army and formed a plan for their defeat. But the Basilica of Victor Amadeus cannot be seen without raising emotions unfavourable to its founder. This place was like Louis Le Grand's Palace of Versailles. It was cemented with the blood and washed tears of his people. He kept his vow to the Virgin, but thousands must have been wrung from his subjects to enable him to do so. But he knew not how to abide by the promises of protection and good government that he made them in the hour of peril. Although they were drawn from him by services and sacrifices which deserved the amplest recompense. Right, so I thought I'd better say a little bit about this um, Basilica of Superga that William's talking about here. It is this very grand church overlooking Turin on a high hill. I actually think it's slightly strange building of sort of two halves because it, it does at the front of it have this extremely grand Baroque style architecture the huge dome, huge portico, big bell towers. But that's very much the front elevation of the building. And then behind it, attached to the back, is, I don't know, a very sort of just plain, square-looking building of, of a couple of stories. It's obviously, you know, is, a, is grand as you approach it, but from behind, I would say it looks rather plain and nondescript. So as a whole, I think it's a, a rather... Well, as I say, it's a building of two halves with a very grand front and entrance, but not so spectacular rear part. Just to say, this um, reference that William's making to this sort of legend of how it was built, it is to do with Victor Amadeus. Basically, he's up there. Basically, Turin was being seized during the whole War of the Spanish Succession. I won't go into too much depth about all that. Basically, I, there's a lot of wrangling i suppose amongst monarchs in that part of europe time including spain as to who's who's getting control over territory and stuff and uh, this also includes france and um so it's what's called the siege of turin and then the battle of turin is the kind of uh, denouement of that whole incident but basically victor amadeus goes to the top of the hill there that overlooks turin to look and um then with his uh, friend and uh, very successful assistant campaigner, the Prince of Carignano, Eugene of Savoy, he's called. He was actually a very successful military campaigner in Europe uh, for many years you know, in the Spanish War of Succession, but other other ongoing conflicts as well. So anyway, they're, they're looking over this hill, looking down upon where the French are all camped out trying to siege Turin and making plans as to how they're going to defeat them and this is a story that Victor Amdo swore that uh, if they won, he would build a great monument to the Virgin Mary and uh, at that spot. And of course, that's where the Basilica gets built uh, after they were successful at defeating the French. So that's a story that William's alluding to. This all happens in the sort of um, early 1700s, basically. 
And I suppose you've got William's point about him sort of spending the money and wasting the money on it. It became the burial place for the kings of Savoy or the kings of Sardinia. I think a couple of Italian kings are buried there as well. But obviously William isn't really impressed by this monument to grandeur and to victory. And uh, as he says, perhaps the money would have been better spent by the king uh, helping his uh, soldiers, you know, in a in an institution like... Uh, as he references there, the Chelsea Hospital in London. Now, a bit of an adjunct to this story of this building, I just thought it was quite interesting from a British, I suppose, point of view, is that in 1949, it was also the site of what was known as the Superga Air Disaster of Gran Torino. Now, Gran Torino were like the best football team in Italy at the time, and um, they'd won numerous league cups, and league titles. I think they'd won about five in a row or something. And there were many of the Gran Torino side were actually also in the Italian national side as well. So anyway, they were coming back from a a match against Lisbon with uh, SL Benfica. And uh, it was just a friendly, actually, which is a sad thing, I suppose you could say. They were in this Fiat plane, passenger plane, three-engined propped plane, of that era of that time you know you've seen pictures of them so um anyway not quite sure what happened it was bad weather i think the pilots got a bit disorientated as to how high or low they were coming down into turin some thought that their instruments might have been faulty as well and um sadly they crashed into the back of the superga well sort of into the hill just below the actual building they didn't quite hit the actual superga itself Although, just looking at the pictures, they must have... Well, they hit the bottom of it, and sadly everyone was killed, including journalists, the whole team. So in total, there were 31 people died during this crash. But it just struck me as being a little bit similar to what in Britain is known as the Munich Air Crash, when the Manchester United team, they were also called the Busby Babes, who were also a very successful team. They were on their way to winning their third title in a row. I mean, it was different circumstances that that plane crashed on takeoff um, and not everyone was killed. About 20 people were killed and about 20 survived. But I think you could say in terms of, let's say, the national psyche or the national empathy for a football team full of young football players and young men, there seems to be, you know, there definitely are similar kind of... um, crossovers there or sentiments there between what happened in the uh, Superga air crash and what happened at, uh, at the the Munich air disaster as it's called I thought that it might just be of interest to uh, particularly English listeners and particularly Man United fans um, that there was this similar thing that happened I think they say that every year they still sort of mark the occasion of um, the crash at the uh, Basilica Superga uh, every year in in Turin, so um, still marked to this day. Okay, I think I'm going to finish here for the moment. Seems a fairly good point to stop. William's still got a bit to talk about um, Turin, so um, but it seems a good point, and I think by the time I've edited this all together, then uh, <laughs> you'll be fed up with the sound of me. So. <laughs> And uh, I think it's quite a good place to stop here at this uh, point of William's journey. So I think if you like, he's done the first day in Turin, the next one will be the next day in Turin. Okay, 
If you have been, thanks for listening. Thank you.